I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today, James Palmer. He is deputy editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. James, how would you assess at this point the Biden administration's tactics when it comes to dealing with China, something about which you've written quite extensively as it relates to prior administrations and now going beyond these first 100 days of the Biden administration? I think the approach has been strong so far. They've picked up on some of the good things that the Trump administration did do on China. Um, and some of the, and even kept some of the personnel who were talented and competent, and you know, career professionals rather than Trumpian politicians, while ditching the you know more stupid, extreme, um, or just rhetorically unnecessary bits of the Trumpian stance. So they've managed to put forward, I think, a strong viewpoint and, and one that you know reflects where the U.S. Uh, as a whole is on China at the moment, without being unnecessarily provocative or geared towards a domestic audience that, you know, is more concerned with sort of uh, um, uh, racism at home, that is more concerned with with perpetuating racism at home than it is with actually tackling the problems that the PRC causes. You have a new feature in foreign policy. Why don't you tell our listeners about it? So we found that China is occupying part of northern Bhutan. Um, Bhutan is a small country between India and China that has tried very hard to stay neutral in the conflict between the two. It's more or less an Indian protectorate, um, but it's very aware of the danger of 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 China on its borders. Um, There's an area called the uh, Bail, the Bail Panfogon, which has been claimed by China since the early 1980s, but... um, was a very weak, very tenuous claim based on uh, essentially invented uh, documents about the past um, and wasn't even on the Chinese maps until the 2000s. It turns out that in secret, China occupied this area in 2015 and has been building extensive military infrastructure and uh, planting settler villages there to try and solidify this claim. So this is a major escalation of... Um, China's aggression along its land borders. Bhutan has stayed quiet about this, we believe, because um, it didn't want, it doesn't really have anything it can do about it, and it didn't want to uh, put New Delhi um, on the spot uh, and force a a confrontation between India and China, because the long-term objective here is actually not the uh, to threat, really just threaten Bhutan directly, which doesn't matter that much to China, is to try and force Bhutan to trade this area for claims in the West, which directly relate to the tripartite uh, Bhutan-India-China border. And that border is much more dangerous. We've seen killings there last year. We've seen the 1962 war there. Um, and so this could be a really major escalation. We hear the word escalation uh, largely in the abstract, but there is increasingly bellicose rhetoric from both China and its Australian counterparts. 
when you think of the probability of actual combat uh, or military intervention, not just aggressive talk, what do you think would be the likeliest scenario of that to emerge during this Biden administration? Um, I think that there are uh, three flashpoints, three main flashpoints. Um, I'd say the most dangerous is actually on the Indian border because we've already seen killing there uh, last year. We've already seen these clashes um, that could very easily escalate into a, a wider conflict. Um, and you have, you know, two bellicose and nationalistic powers with very undetermined borders. Um, the second, of course, is Taiwan. Now, I, I read that second because although China has upped the rhetoric around invasion and, you know, China has been threatening the invasion of Taiwan ever since Taiwan came into existence back when they were contending um, that contending parties for the leadership of China itself. Um, but even more, in fact, since Taiwan became, in effect, an independent democracy that does not really um, assert any, any claim over the Chinese mainland. Um, but, you know, the, this sort of saber-rattling China, China has been constantly aggressive towards Taiwan. Um, an actual invasion would be a hugely risky move on China's part, and I don't think that that appetite for risk-taking is really there. Um, in the event of a Chinese political crisis at home, it could be, um, or if China feels that um, now is its moment of greatest advantage and it's going to lose that over the long term as it becomes bogged down in demographic and economic problems that are sort of, you know, waiting in the wings. Um, and, you know, obviously an invasion of Taiwan could escalate into a, a, not only a military clash with the US, but with any number of other powers. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the underrated ones is always the possibility of a clash with Vietnam, where China invaded Vietnam in 1979 um, in a largely failed invasion to try and deter Vietnam from um, its conquest of Cambodia and its expulsion of the Khmer Rouge, who were Chinese allies, um, there's quite a bit of bitterness still about losing that war within the PLA. And there's also um, a lot of territorial clashes, particularly in the South China Sea, um, that could escalate. So I would say those are the three major flashpoints. Um, of course, China has disputes with almost uh, all of its neighbours at this point. Its popularity is at a nadir with almost all of its neighbors outside of Russia due to the COVID pandemic and China's increased diplomatic aggression. And so I think um, we, and so I think there's the possibility of many, of, of even things we're not really thinking about, um, like Japan and the Diaoyu Islands, that contended territory um, that became a big flashpoint back in the early 2010s um, to explode into something. It's fair to say that any one of those microaggressions um, or localized conflicts inevitably would trigger regional or even international global conflict. And that's why any one is unlikely to happen. Potentially, yes. I think the big problem is that these things are not even entirely in, in China's control and that the atmosphere of increased aggression and the domestic political paranoia has generated um, a mood in which uh, a commander on the on the ground might make decisions, um, fearing that if he didn't make the aggressive decision, he could face political prosecution um, or 
uh, essentially being stabbed in the back by his contemporaries or underlings to, for their own promotion. Um, and those aggressive moves could draw um, both sides into a, a conflict that they didn't really want. Uh, I don't think that's likely around Taiwan. I think it's possible around India or Vietnam. Uh, it would match roughly with what we saw during the Sino-Soviet border clash, for instance, uh, when the two powers came very, very close to war as the result of a border skirmish that killed several hundred people, but pulled back at the last moment. Um, so while rationally, of course, you know, um, war would be a disaster for everyone, course of the the course of both military events and um domestic political paranoias doesn't run in a rational fashion you describe the biden approach as preserving the measure of skepticism if not adversarial challenge to china however doesn't seem clear if the Biden administration is going to view China's inability to contain this pandemic, which was really the original cause, as something that deserves a penalty. Uh, Because the penalty for Donald Trump nativistically from the rhetorical perspective was the way he exploited it in American politics and calling the pandemic, the China virus. But there is a legitimate question, not about castigating or alienating a region or continent, but demanding the kind of investigation or scrutiny that still has not been forthcoming with respect to the origin of the virus. And should that never be forthcoming, taking a stance on China's culpability and what kind of penalty should be associated with their failure to contain this virus. So when it comes to that question, where do you think the Biden administration stands right now and, and what are they prepared to do in the future? I think the Biden administration has generally been careful around the question of ascribing accountability to China over the failure to contain COVID. Um, that's probably a wise approach because it's such a potentially explosive issue. Um, I think it's very hard. You know, one of the problems is that, the, that China is never going to allow the kind of accountability or examination that would let us really determine how, how much the Chinese system was to blame for the initial outbreak. Um, and it would, and even again, even if they had been completely blameless, even if they, even if they had done everything right from the start, they would still not allow that examination because the system is built on secrecy. The idea of allowing outsiders in is anathema, um, and everybody involved is covering their is covering their ass both domestic, uh, in domestic politics. Too. So, so I think that that leaves you know the Biden administration with a very difficult decision. You know, do can you can you penalize someone? Can you ascribe accountability when you when they also won't even let you do the detective work to determine accountability in the first place? Um, and I think it's probably wise to avoid that uh, for a number of reasons. First, of course, is that 
while China, um, while Chinese failures, you know, cover-ups and so on, um, resulted in the virus spreading, China was also able able to successfully contain it at home. And so America doesn't really want to go head to head on the issue of who looks better over COVID. Um, secondly, the uh, secondly, it's the kind of it's the kind of issue which inevitably I think verges into into or empowers racist rhetoric because it, the idea of the other foreigners, Asians, as spreading as disease spreaders is an old one and a dangerous one, and we've seen how the consequences of, of Trump's kind of use of China virus language. So I think that the Biden team is very keen to discourage that. And certainly, I just don't think that there is that there are many measures that could be imposed to you know on China like for that. Like, what would you what would you do? Especially what uh, what would you what mechanisms would you would you use? Um, for this sort of abstract concept of, of um, blame over COVID. I do think that they would be well off committing to well, um, proposals that would bolster WHO and give it much clearer powers and authority to um, to both enter countries for investigation and to sanction countries that don't cooperate with these investigations. You know, one of the problems at the moment is expressly that the WHO is really um, very dependent on countries like China because they're so big. And so it ends up in this ridiculous position whereby they, you know, went along with Chinese, um, you know, misstatements or lies about the pandemic early on in order to try and preserve the access. I think uh, empowering WHO in a way that let it say this country is not cooperating and issue warnings about that would be a very good thing. It's not a mechanism for oversight or even a sphere of influence in terms of China's behavior. I mean, I think that's the vital insight that you are imparting, that it not just as it relates to pandemic scrutiny, but any kind of scrutiny, there is no international body that has sway with China anymore, if, if there was any that did at any point. Exactly. And, you know, China has worked very hard to um, make sure that it, it's in command of as many international institutions as it can be. And it's very good at dealing with, for instance, the United Nations, because the United Nations as a, you know, undemocratic, somewhat authoritarian, very large bureaucracy itself, is a system that Chinese politicians, Chinese officials know how to work within. And so they're actually better than the United States at commanding votes within the United Nations um, and it's uh, getting themselves in key committee positions and so on. So, you know, ultimately, there's not really any any way to um, partly sanction China in that way. And I don't and I think, you know, when you have a country of that size, they just look at the look at the way that the US ignores international rulings or uh, or, you know, half commits to international treaties like um, the UNCLOS. Uh, is it the same, though? I mean, I, I understand the point that you're making about the limit of a United Nations or a NATO on U.S. aggression, uh, specifically as it related to Middle Eastern policy and military escalation and invasions. But is it really the same when folks would make that analogy that well, no I mean I mean, look, in terms of international cooperation, you know, look at the, the, the U.S. literally threatened to invade The Hague over the, um, over the you know, International Court of Justice. 
Um, the U.S. has been very reluctant to commit itself to any kind of like real, you know, binding um, scrutiny or, or judgment by outside powers. Um, and so that really weakens its case against China. And again, look at the, um, you know, the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea, which the U.S. follows, the U.S. treats as international law, but which has not been ratified by the U.S. Senate because uh, Republican senators will not um, admit the possibility of the, U of the U.S. being subject to judgment by others. Uh, there's a few exceptions, but it's one of the big weaknesses of the U.S. position if it's trying to, in fact, say that this uh, in international order should apply to China, that China should make itself compliant with um, with these sort of courts and judgments and so on. You're saying, James, that China has precedent in the U.S. misbehavior and there's, or the, the, the lack of... It weakens the, it certainly weakens the ability of the U.S. to say that China should, should do this, should participate in these systems. Um, and it would be much better off if the U.S., which are, was fully participated in these systems itself. Um, if if it wants to, if it wants to, you know, perpetuate the sort of international norm based um, order, um, and I think that that's a real weakness in America's position, but it's not one that's resolvable anytime soon. Um, partially because you know the nature of, it, especially when it comes to treaty ratification, um, the nature of the Senate and the filibuster makes that extremely hard. What is your sense of the most under the radar? international hotspots that the Biden administration will have to contend with in the next few years um, that are not on people's minds right now? Um, I think we're going to see, um, I think we're going to start, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of problems in the Pacific around um, the islands, uh, both in terms of um, China's attempts to buy up uh, support or even land in Pacific Islands and the many crises caused by climate change there. You know, these are places that are exceptionally subject to um, rising seas. And we're, we're already seeing a high degree of, you know, like political disruption um, and uh, even uh, violence as a result, the, the, attack in the, the, the attack in the Maldives today, for instance. Um, and so that's, that I think could be, you know, these little things that, that again, nobody is expecting, but just come out of nowhere. That suddenly China has suddenly it turns out that China basically owns half of Micronesia or this kind of thing. Um, worldwide, you know, I can't say that I know enough about about too many places to be able to predict the the unpredictable. Um, I think that I, I think that relationships with uh, the with Europe in particular are going to be to start getting trickier just because um, the very existence of the Trumpian administration and the past administration, even for some, even with somebody like Biden who wants to return to normality, everybody is now so acutely aware of the possibility of Trump or returning or a, a similar figure to Trump returning, that it really undermines the U.S. ability to do deals. China's Road and Belt Initiative and their relationship with the developing world and the great unknowns about what those alliances forebode in the future. Um, where do you think um, the world must be most watchful of China's incestuous relationships with countries 
um, that it, it has helped fund um, projects for in recent years. Um, you know, do, do you think that the, the, the takeover of those countries is, um, is the reality um, behind the scenes? I don't think I don't think Chinese influence is strong enough that we can call it a takeover. I think that there are countries in which it has effectively suborned um, the elite into taking pro-China positions that the ordinary people of the country um, really do not want. Uh, Kazakhstan would be a good example. The public is very anti-Chinese. The Kazakh government and business elite are very pro-Chinese, uh, essentially because of straightforward bribery. Um, and, you know, a lot of the Belt and Road stuff has been very messy and not that uh, and not that effective. But China's willingness to throw money around uh, to buy, to provide, you know, loans and projects without any kind of qualms has been very useful to it in winning the votes of autocrats worldwide. But I don't think we can say they, they've been taken over by China. I think it mainly makes sense for them from a, you know, purely... Um, a moral, pragmatic perspective, decide with China because China will give them, because China will give them the money. And so we've seen, for instance, you know, the the real betrayal of the Muslim world, of Muslim autocrats at any rate, over the Uyghur, where they've backed um, China's position, even as China conducts a war on Islam um, within Xinjiang, even extending now to other areas like Hainan and the, um, you know, these Muslim autocrats that have. Um, signed up to back China's war on Islam at home, uh, one that started in Xinjiang but is extending into other provinces, you know, that's a purely cynical move. It's not that China has taken them over. It's just that they they care more about getting Chinese, Chinese money than they do about the well-being of fellow Muslims. James Palmer, senior, I should say, James Palmer, deputy editor for Foreign Policy Magazine. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alex.